Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. This may seem like a deep subject for this hour of the morning, but we are going to tackle our existence, as in, why are we here? What is the point of existence? Now, philosophers and scientists have been debating and discussing this for centuries. I mean, even today, this continues. For instance, our next guest has written about it and is the author of Why? The Purpose of the Universe. It's Dr. Philip Goff, a professor of philosophy at Durham University. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Simi. Good to speak to you. Thanks for having me on. Well, okay. I'm going to start by asking why. What is the purpose of the universe? Where do you even start, Dr. Goff, with a title like that? Yeah, it's a big question. Uh, So I find so many people feel they have to fit into the dichotomy of either, either you believe in the God of traditional Western religion or you're a secular atheist. You know, it's like, whose side are you on, Richard Dawkins or the Pope? And, And I've just come to think, through my philosophical and scientific work over a long period of time, that both of these views have problems and inadequacies. Both of them have things they can't explain about reality. And so that's why I ended up writing this book that tries to explore the much neglected middle ground between these two extremes of God and atheism. Do you think that's where most people reside then in that middle ground? It's funny, isn't it? Because I think a a huge proportion of the population does consider themselves, say, spiritual but not religious. But traditionally, academics, scientists and philosophers haven't really catered for these people. And so we get the idea it's sort of fluffy minded, not really thought through. But I think that's just because people haven't worked on it. So what I'm trying to do in this book in an accessible way is draw on contemporary cosmology and cutting edge research on consciousness to say, Look, actually, there's things both the traditional God hypothesis and Richard Dawkins style atheism can't explain about reality. So we can rigorously support these middle ground options that appeal to so many people. Okay, because people, I think, do continually look for meaning, right? They look for answers. So then what are the problems then with the middle ground? Yeah, so I think in, in terms of the traditional atheist view of a meaningless, purposeless universe, this has come up to the difficulty of what's called the fine-tuning of physics, the surprising discovery of recent decades that certain numbers in physics turn out to be just right for life against incredible odds. One of the examples that's most baffled cosmologists revolves around dark energy. This is the force that powers the expansion of the universe Now, once you do the calculations, it becomes clear that if that force had been just a little bit stronger, everything would have shot apart so quickly that no two particles would have ever met. We wouldn't have had stars, planets, any kind of structural complexity and therefore no life. Whereas if that force had been a little bit weaker, it wouldn't have counteracted gravity and the entire universe would have collapsed back on itself a split second after the Big Bang. So for life to be possible, 
The strength of this thought force had to be like Goldilocks porridge, just right, not too strong, not too weak. And there are many, many numbers in physics like this. So I think either this is just an absolutely unbelievable fluke, which to my mind is too improbable to take seriously, or there is some kind of goal-directedness towards life at the fundamental level of reality. It's what I call cosmic purpose, some kind of purpose or directionality in the universe. But, but I think we can make sense of that in the absence of the traditional God. Okay, this is fascinating to me because what you're saying is that, no, it couldn't have been just a fluke. It had to be more than that, which a lot of people believe because, is it because we we don't want to think that everything we have and we've built in our existence could just be a cosmic fluke? So, yeah, there is a question of, you know, is, is this is something that we need to believe in or is good for us? But I actually think there's really powerful evidence. Yeah, I mean, sometimes when things are a little bit improbable, we're happy to think it's just a nice, funny coincidence. But when it gets unbelievably improbable, that doesn't be, that is no longer a rational option. Take, for example, if bank robbers break into a bank and they, there's a 10-digit combination on the safe and they get it right first time. Now, nobody would say, oh, well, maybe they just fluked it, you know, because that's just too improbable. But the kind of probabilities we're dealing with here are more than astronomical, one in 10 to the 136. So I think it really is, at this stage of evidence, irrational not to believe in cosmic purpose. And I think as a society, we're a bit in denial about it because it doesn't fit with the picture of science we've got used to. It's maybe a bit like in the 16th century when we first started getting evidence that we weren't in the center of the universe and people struggled to accept that because it didn't fit with the picture of the universe right. they got used to. I but think it's the same now with cosmic purpose. Okay, well, how do you prove cosmic purpose though? Well, what I'm saying is that our best scientific theories point in that direction. Now, you know, the evidence might change tomorrow. Who knows? But all we can ever do is deal with the scientific evidence as we now have it. And as I discuss in the book, the scientific evidence, I, I would say either it's just an unbelievable fluke that the numbers are just right for life, or there is some kind of goal-directedness. I think the f first option is too improbable to take seriously. So how lucky we are. Current science actually does support cosmic purpose, believe it or not. Are you always also talking, though, about a type of middle ground here where science had some role in it, but with a few nudges? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, as I say, I don't go for the traditional God hypothesis either. Here we've got the familiar difficulties of reconciling a loving God with the terrible, gratuitous suffering we find in the world, particularly in the natural world. You know, why would a loving God create the North American long-tailed shrew that paralyzes its prey and then slowly eats them alive over several days before they die from their wounds? You know, that just makes no sense to me. Why would a loving God <laughs> That's do really that? That's really quite amazing. So I yes. think this there's things God hypothesis can't explain. There's things atheism can't explain. What we need is a rigorous scientifically and philosophically informed conception of cosmic goal-directedness that doesn't rely either on the traditional idea of God or just the now outdated idea of a meaningless, purposeless universe. And so, that's really what I'm trying to explore in the book. Okay, so where do we start with something like that then? Well, so I consider a range of hypotheses and... Um, I mean, it could be, maybe there is some kind of design hypothesis, maybe that the traditional God won't do it, but 
maybe our universe was created by a bad a bad designer or an amoral designer or a or a designer of limited abilities that's just doing the best she can. Or maybe we can consider the simulation hypothesis associated with Nick Bostrom. Make the idea that maybe we're in a computer simulation created by some random software engineer in the next universe up, just testing out certain possibilities. I also explore in great detail the possibility that the universe itself is a conscious mind with its own goals rather than a supernatural creator outside of our universe. Now, these sound very strange and, as I say, don't fit with how we've become used to thinking about science and reality. But there has actually, in recent academic philosophy, been a resurgence to interest in in taking these ideas seriously. And ultimately, I just think we need to follow the evidence where it seems to be leaving, leading not not getting hung up with either our religious biases or our secular biases, just looking at the evidence and what, what hypotheses work to explain it. So fascinating. Listen, thank you so much for the discussion this morning. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, thank, thanks for having me on. I love that. That's Dr. Philip Gaw, professor of philosophy at Durham University, the author of Why? The Purpose of the Universe. So, you know, just a small question that he's trying to tackle in that book too, right? But such an important one that has been discussed, debated, tackled for hundreds of years. This is Mornings with Simi. We were going to have to make ACDC Scott's theme song now because our Scott Shantz is with us. Yesterday, Scott, you told us how much you love ACDC. Oh my gosh, ACDC are legendary. They're also, such a great rock band. Great way to wake you up at this time of the morning too, Oh right? yeah, who doesn't want, like, it's just so great. Every song is great. Every song sounds the same in a good way. AC, like, who doesn't love that? This is awesome. It's so great. I feel like you would say that about a lot of things though because you are our Mr. Enthusiasm. I try to be when there's something that I like that I'm kind of into. I do, yeah, you know, I try to, I try to get on board with it, get into it, and, and I like you to really share do. that you with do people. You do very well, very well. You know? Uh, how do you feel about crows? See, well, okay, well, here's the thing. If I, I'm not, I'm, I don't have to take that view with everything because the idea that people are befriending crows, to me, I'm like, this is, this is ridiculous. Why are we what? doing this? It's a terrible idea. You're kidding me. Yeah. Okay, I'm actually shocked. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. That you would say that because it did not surprise me in the slightest because I've had people in my family and extended circle of friends who've done this before or tried to do this before. There's something about crows that people are quite, they're quite magnetic. People just want to be liked by a crow. Yeah, which honestly I have I have never got, you know. And I I'm I'm full of surprises, Simmy. Uh, you the, thi- are. <laughs> the thing about crows. 
like they're fine. I don't I don't have an inherent problem with them. I just don't want to keep one as a pet. You know, wow. if, I, if I want a pet, I'm going to get a dog or Amazing. maybe a cat. You know. So yesterday we talked to a young man who's got this YouTube channel called Eris Thought, where he talks about his friendship with a crow that yes. he has made. And I asked people, and I knew, and I knew Scott that people would have of crow course. stories. Yeah. Boy, did I get a lot of crow stories. So let me just read you a couple. Okay. And I, this is also something Scott would not do. Okay. But I want to introduce you to this person who emailed me. It's Mark. So Mark sent me this story saying that he has also, he lives on the north side of False Creek and also has two pet crows. He said, first a crow, first crow appeared on their patio more than a year ago. He grew accustomed to them. They started feeding him, but it became, they were giving him almonds, but it became very apparent to them that he preferred Costco branded cashews. Okay. So the time went by, they, they, they named him Crawford. Of course, for Mark Crawford, you yep. can appreciate that. Yep. He was later joined by what I believe is his mate, a much more demure, demure than Crawford, so they call her Cheryl Crow. Okay. Hilarious. I love this, Mark. They show up every day, mostly for food, but often just to hang out. If you're tardy with the cashews or busy doing other things, Crawford will follow you from window to window, tapping insistently on their window until they come out and bring him some cashews. Uh, they often share items that they have collected elsewhere. Unfortunately, this usually consists of partially consumed mussels or crab carcasses, but they're gifts. Right. You got to take them as objects of friendship. So okay, Mark goes on to tell me more stories about Crawford and Cheryl Crow, but I absolutely love that. And then I realized Mark was not the only one. Uh, I've got emails from, oh my gosh, at least half a dozen people. I got one from Mar another Mark from Port Coquitlam who believes that crows saved his life because he was out fishing on the Chehalis and he and a friend were kind of wandering through the woods. They, they thought they had found a shortcut. Sure. To, and then they had a bunch of crows that were like insistently right there, like kind of dive bombing them and, and cawing at them. And they were like, what is going on with these crows? Okay, something's weird here. So they turned around and they went back. And then they were talking to some other uh, fishermen who were there and they were telling the story about, look at these crazy crows did this. And the fisherman said, no, 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 no. There's a, a mama, there's a bear den right over there where you oh, were. Okay. And there's a, probably a mama bear and cubs sleeping in there. And if you had taken a few more steps, you would have disturbed the bear and the bear would have come at you because you were just threatening, right? right? The, so the, he believes, Mark. this Mark does, that the crow saved his life. And I think that, that that's possible. I have no problem with that. But again, like they're, they're birds and they carry diseases and they like you don't get any real compassion. Okay, so it comes and knocks on the window and you give it a peanut. It doesn't like snuggle up on the bed with you like a dog does. You know, it's not like loyal to you like it stays at your side and is like your, your companion. They just swoop in, they get the peanut and they go away. I cannot believe that we found a crack in Scott's armor. <laughs> that we found the one thing that you're not down with, well, and that is befriending a crow. It just doesn't seem practical to me, Simmy. Like, what's the benefit to me, you know? Have you ever had somebody in your life that you've come across, Scott, where you've turned on your charm and you've been as nice as possible, and somehow they seem impenetrable? That you think, oh, this person, oh, sure. for some reason, this person doesn't like me, and it yeah. just makes you want to try to get them to like you? Yes. That's what crows are for a lot of people. It's like you can't believe a crow has actually liked you because they seem so mysterious. They do. And I think it's sort of because they're all black and they have black eyes. And yeah, there is a lot of mystery and allure around them. I get all of that. It just maybe it's just one of those things that's just not for me. 
You know, I want my pet to be able to, I want to go on a walk with it. I want to take it camping, take it on a car ride. So you're not even a cat person then? I mean, cats are okay. I oh, okay, you know, that's the end of this conversation. Nope, that's but the end of this conversation right now. Nope, that's the end of this conversation <laughs> right now. If you want to weigh in with your crow stories, despite Scott Chance, yeah, go ahead. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Vaughn, I'm guessing you don't have any crow as your friend stories. I have a story about our provincial legislature and the crow menace. Every spring, pretty much every spring, you see signs in the garden outside my office saying, warning, a nesting season for aggressive crows. Be careful you don't get attacked. Wear a hat. Uh, Make quick tracks across the uh, garden. Don't do anything threatening because every yeah. year there are crow attacks. They they pass their aggression on from generation to generation. We we had a bit of a laugh, Sammy, when an expert on crows told the local newspaper that, you know, the reason crows attack people, especially bald heads and um, light-colored hair, is because they mistake you for weasels. <laughs> Perfect. I, I thought that was hysterically funny until they attacked me. Oh, oh yeah, that's so, not so funny. So, Simi, you've seen the birds, right? The Hitchcock of film? Of course, I love that you movie. You know he used real birds, real crows for key scenes. And, Tippi and I understand. She never got the, over it. I understand the crows threw themselves into their role with enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. Mm, that was a lot of trauma for the actors involved yeah, in that. Yeah, no. uh, okay, so we'll put you on the no crow list for sure. Uh, let's talk more about what's going on in Halifax where the premiers are meeting. And uh, David Eby does seem to be a bit of an outlier. Yeah, they put out a communique yesterday, the premiers did. They always like to show they're all on the same page. So they put out a communique saying the premiers unanimously agreed that the country's carbon tax must be applied fairly and equitably across Canada. And we then go to David Eby to find out what that means for him. So he's wearing a I Love Heat Pumps t-shirt. And he says that he agrees that the federal government's subsidies for heat pumps, which were tailored to the Atlantic provinces, should be available right across Canada. So that has him speaking on the same position as the other premiers. However, significant break with the other premiers on the effectiveness of the carbon tax and whether or not it should be applied to home heating fuel. As you know, Simi, the feds have uh, given provinces that are part of the federal tax regimen, they're giving them a three-year holiday from tax on home heating oil, but not natural gas and not uh, propane, which is kind of perverse since the dirtiest of those three fuels is home heating oil. But anyway, they've done. Uh, EB doesn't support doing that with BC's carbon tax. He says that the carbon tax is effective out here And he says the cost of paying the carbon tax is a lot less than what British Columbians have paid in climate change damage over the last few years, including flooding and forest fires. So he doesn't support it. He's an outlier. Uh, I think it's going to be a political challenge for him. I think the public is of the view that we do need some relief. They do need some relief from the carbon tax, especially people who live in places with winter, which is a significant part of British Columbia as well. 
and they want the relief on natural gas because here in British Columbia, that's the fuel we use mostly, not home heating oil. Right. He was he made quite the statement with that T-shirt, too. Yeah, no, the T-shirt. Look, the home, the 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 heat pump thing is uh, a popular stand. And on that one, the premier is absolutely right that uh, B.C. should get the same incentives as other provinces. And talks are underway between the province and the federal government to make that happen. So I think that'll be forthcoming. Although, you know, I was struck by something the Premier of Alberta, Daniel Smith, said yesterday, which is, if you're in places with really cold climates, like Alberta, heat pumps don't work all that well. You know, she says, mm-hmm. when it's 35 below, forget it. Your heat pump is not going to do, do it. And I've, I've heard that from British Columbians in uh, the north and the interior of the province that, you know, it's all very well for you folks down there in the southwest uh, with your tropical climate, but where it gets really cold, again, heat pumps are not the answer. And, uh, you know, I think there the premier is probably not thinking of all British Columbians. He's thinking of the ones where heat pumps are a pretty good idea. We are back with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning and more on what Premier David Eby has had to say in recent days. He's in Halifax for a meeting of all the premiers across the country, but still talking as well about this Randall Hopley case, Vaughn. Yeah, so on Sunday morning, the Premier did his first availability from Halifax, uh, a phone-in, and Richard Zussman, uh, Global, our colleague there, asked the Premier about the Hopley case. Was he Hopley was already, had already disappeared at that point, uh, hadn't returned to his halfway house, and the Premier This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, he shared the dismay of many British Columbians that such a person could be uh, loose, a uh, convicted a child abductor, a child sex offender, violated his conditions and hadn't returned to his halfway house. Um, the premier blamed the parole board. He said to the parole board, uh, you know, he needed an explanation from the parole board of how this happened. We all reported the premier saying it. He's the premier. He was an attorney general and he is a lawyer. So you know, it's not always a great idea to assume a premier knows what he's talking about, but in this case, we did. And yesterday, I don't know if your news organization got the note, but mm-hmm. Vancouver Sun, we got a note from the parole board saying, don't blame us. We didn't do this. So the parole board said, look, here's what happened. Copley, uh, Copley, Hopley had served his sentence and After he'd served his six years, he was under a long-term order 
that set conditions. He's supposed to go to a halfway house. He's supposed to stay away from children. He's supposed to respect a curfew. And that's the order he was under. But parole board said, we don't issue that order. When the sentence is completed, some offenders are subject to a long-term order, but that's imposed by the courts. It's enforced, uh, sorry, monitored by the Federal Corrections Service. When there are allegations that it has been violated, it's up to the Crown Prosecution Service to uh, go after the person and haul them into court and uh, try to get their conditions revoked. So the parole board said, we didn't do this. And I mean, they didn't say the premier was being unfair to them. It's a complicated system. It is, uh, yeah. Just sorting through the note from the parole board yesterday took a while to get it clarified. But, you know, again, I think the parole board knows what's going on here. And I, near as I can determine from the way it works, um, there's there certainly are unanswered questions here. And I think uh, opposition... Uh, BC United, MLA, Eleanor Sturco got it right when she said that the government should do, in this case, what it did in the Chinatown stabbing case, which is get an independent review of how this happened, why, for example, Hopley um, wasn't, uh, didn't have his um, bail and freedom revoked after he was uh, charged with violating the conditions. Right. So my understanding is I've been trying to figure this out, too, is that the Crown Council, according to the attorney general, did ask for some conditions, but it was the judge who said, no, this is what we're going to do. Yes. So that's uh, Attorney General Nikki Sharma did come out yesterday after uh, the opposition spoke on this and said, "Okay, this much we do know. And that is that the Crown prosecutor So what happens is that Hopley is uh, accused, uh, found to be operating a computer in a library near children. And that is alleged to have happened. And that's what he's accused of violating the long-term conditions. And uh, he goes into court in February. The alleged violation occurs in January. goes into court in February. Attorney General says the Crown prosecutor did argue with the court that because of the seriousness of the situation and the allegations that um, Hopley should be denied bail. The court didn't agree. And that happens a lot in British Columbia. It's the source of enormous frustration to the EB government. And the Premier, Attorney General, says both say, hey, this is why we need bail reform in Canada. Well, they're right about us needing bail reform, but here's the problem. The bail reform legislation, Simi, that's before Parliament, would not necessarily have captured Hopley. That legislation would make it harder for repeat violent offenders to get bail, but it doesn't specifically say that it should be harder for someone accused of child abduction, particularly someone who served their sentence, to get bail. Here's the thing, though, Vaughn. I think for the average person like myself, we don't think you need to do more. There should already be enough in place to deal with child abductors and sex offenders because you shouldn't need to say, oh, we need extra for that because isn't that what the justice system is supposed to be for? The cases exactly like this one. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, I went back and uh, Nikki Sharma went to the Senate committee that's been holding, the Senate's still holding up the bail reform, right? She went to the uh, committee uh, back in uh, October on a virtual hookup to explain to the committee why British Columbia thinks the bail reform legislation is essential and why the Senate should get on with passing it. And she runs into all these objections from senators who say, well, you know, innocent until proven guilty and you can't, you'll, you, this will be disproportionately impact indigenous people. And they're not persuaded that all this is necessary. You know, I liked David Eby's comment that he has rarely been so enthusiastic in agreeing with the NDP's view that the Senate should be abolished. Um, I, I, the thing you have to say is the bail reform legislation before the Senate, which is still held up there, wouldn't even deal with this case probably, but we still need it. And I think you're right, Simi, that the public mood is overwhelmingly that uh, this slapping on the wrist for some offenders has got to stop. Yeah, I think for us, it's it's don't quibble about yeah. what the this this was this was supposed to happen here. This was supposed to happen here. The overall justice system is designed to protect us from people exactly like this: child abductors, sex offenders. So, do we need yeah. extra rules for that, or do we just need the rules? Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Right? No, I mean the most interesting thing the premier said on Sunday morning, thinking like a a parent, not a premier, is is anyone who's got a four year old exactly lives should be alarmed by this. Well, the premier has two small children, two young children in his family. Family. And of course, this is a guy who um, abducted uh, a three-year-old uh, from a second-floor apartment and kept them for several days. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the premier is is on the right page with the public now. Uh, it'd be interesting to see a debate between David Eby of today and the one that was a, an oh, activist boy. lawyer no back kidding, before he right? came into politics. But, you know, okay, so he's reformed. I say he's on the same page as the public now. And uh, that's a good thing. Also, you know, he said something himself that was, I think, significant in that evolution is that he's got kids now. And I think the having of kids and all of that, that changes you, changes your perspective on a lot of things. And that's that's a different situation. Yeah, there's that old line from American politics that uh, a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged by reality. Uh, (laughs) You know, uh, that's. There's probably a variation on that for this day and age, but no, you're right, Simi. The 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 people that have been bombarding the Canadian Senate with, including the Civil Liberties Association, saying do not do this bail reform thing. It's going to put the country on the wrong track. Uh, they do not speak for the public. Uh, increasingly, I think the Premier of British Columbia is on the same page as the public on this issue, and I think that's a good thing. Yes, and we will see what happens with this. Savon, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Are we watching the slow demise of the carbon tax? Only a few years ago, I mean, heck, only a few months ago, it seemed the carbon tax was a done deal, a policy that was not going to go anywhere. It was now all done. And then one decision by the federal liberal government to grant an exemption to some provinces in home heating oil has caused a huge ripple effect that now has even BC politicians, some of them anyway, questioning whether we should keep the whole thing or start to tweak it. So we thought it was worthwhile to take a look at its impact. Like, who does it affect? Is it an effective tool for doing what we think it's supposed to do? That is, bring down greenhouse gas emissions. Well, Dr. Catherine Harrison is a professor of political science at the University of British Columbia and joins us now to talk about this. Thank you so much for being here. 
It's my pleasure. What do you make of all this right now, this debate about what we thought was like a settled policy? Oh, well, it's never been settled with the Conservative Party federally. Um, we saw Mr. Scheer railing against the carbon tax. It kind of settled down a bit under um, uh, Aaron O'Toole, but it's been back for a while with Pierre Poilievre, who's, who's really been um, initiating the populist messages once again, and in many cases in very misleading ways. So does that mean it is now, do you think, open for debate? Could we see some more tweaking? Do you think Canadians are responding? Um, I I think Canadians are responding to uh, Mr. Poilievre's messages. Uh, At least that may be contributing to the rise of the Conservatives' popularity in the polls. I think it is in many cases because they're misunderstanding the degree to which the carbon tax is impacting the energy prices that's really affecting households, the the growing cost of living challenge is mostly not due to the carbon tax. In fact, it's a very little part of it, but that's the one that the Conservatives are emphasizing. And in um, the eight provinces subject to the federal carbon tax, there is um, widespread underestimation of the magnitude of the rebates people are getting. Uh, Most people are getting more money back than they're paying, but they don't know that. So, I mean, I do think the Conservatives are getting traction, and it'll be interesting to see um, how well the Liberals can do in fighting back and explaining what's really been a centerpiece policy for this government. Right, which makes me, don't, I, just, I don't understand then why they would tweak it in this way to open the door for this. Oh, a lot of us have been <laughs> wondering that. I can, I can tell you a lot of us academics. Um, I think What has happened is a particular challenge of affordability for folks who heat their homes with fuel oil rather than fossil gas or electricity. Um, Those are people who don't have an option. Historically, there isn't a gas pipeline to their community or the area that they live. And it's a really expensive way to heat one's home. The price of fuel oil since the war in Ukraine, and that's really been the stimulus, has almost doubled. So there are people paying, you know, $800 a month in the winter uh, to heat their homes in some places. Um, And I think that was the impetus. That was the pressure from Atlantic Canadian MPs. The waiver for three years on application of the federal carbon tax doesn't apply in British Columbia um, is applies everywhere that all provinces where people are burning fuel oil. It's not just available in Atlantic Canada. Um, I think it was not. There were other ways, um, other more immediate ways to address that affordability challenge, one of which the federal government is doing, which is increasing the rebates and trying to get those households off fuel oil and onto energy efficient and clean heat pumps. Um, So, you know, I think it was a mistake. I I suspect they didn't anticipate just how much blowback they -hmm. would get. So far, they're holding the line. What do we know about the effectiveness of the carbon tax as a policy? Um, we know quite a lot. Uh, the, in fact, a lot of the, the best studies are, um, were done on British Columbia's carbon tax uh, because we had this one province that adopted a carbon tax when other provinces in the same country with similar data did not do so. And that's allowed economists to do 
by my count, 50 to 20 peer-reviewed studies. Um, for regular folks like me, what we know is that people respond to prices. If, you know, if I go to the grocery store and the price of bananas is higher um, this week than oranges, I'm more inclined to, you know, maybe go light on the bananas and buy more oranges. And what we find is that people are doing the same thing when their energy prices change. That may be really subtle things like combining trips to the store or, you know, getting that heat yeah, that uh, weather stripping done on that basement door, adjusting the thermostat um, that, you know, overnight or when one goes goes away. But when big purchases come up, replacing a car, replacing a furnace, it is an impetus to think, gee, maybe we should go with a hybrid or even make the leap to an electric vehicle. Maybe now is the time to get that um, heat pump. So what those studies are telling us is that people have responded to prices in British Columbia, they reduced um, their consumption of dirtier fossil fuels. Uh, it did not harm the economy, but we also know that the reductions that were achieved were not deep enough um, because the price was too low. So we need a stronger price signal to drive British Columbia and you know across Canada to meet our climate targets. Okay, that's the thing that I don't understand then. So rather than telling people we'll give you a break on home heating oil, shouldn't there have been more of an emphasis to say we're going to help you get off of home heating oil? Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. Um, they did do that as well. Um, there was uh, an announcement. Initially, it's a pilot program, and this one's only Atlantic Canada, and I think that's problematic, um, to for middle or low income households increase the value of a heat pump subsidy so that it is essentially paying for the full heat pump, you know, basically giving households a free heat pump. Now the, um, the price incentives given how expensive it is to heat with fuel oil is already there. People can already save money um, by replacing their um, their oil boiler with a heat pump. But there's this upfront cost that is a real a real challenge for many households. And that's what this um, this subsidy program does. I think it's a really good program. And I think the federal government needs to extend it to other households across Canada, because there are more, uh, more families burning fuel oil in other provinces outside Atlantic Canada. So it sounds like politics got to this. You're saying that as a policy, it could have worked if they had continued to do the things that they were supposed to do to implement a carbon tax, help people transition, you know, to different, less polluting forms of energy. And now it just seems like it's gotten broken down by politics. Well, you know, the politics have been there all along. This has been a really challenging one politically. And I think the Liberal government, initially the Liberal government in British Columbia in 2008 and since 2016, the federal government, have shown some real political courage in um, holding the line when opponents, the opposition parties, have often made really misleading arguments saying that carbon taxes don't work saying that it's really hurting families when, you know, most of them are getting more money back than they're paying, um, those kinds of things. So it's been political all along. It's ironic and I think unfortunate that the federal government, which has held the line and mm. fought two elections since they uh, implemented this policy nationally, um, made this move 
you know, un, in sort of um, panic, it would seem seems, in the last 10 days or so. Oh, it certainly but seems I that way. I don't think it's a given that they, that the whole thing is gone. Um, right. So far, they're holding the line. We'll see. We will see. Dr. Harrison, thanks for your time. You're very welcome. Dr. Catherine Harrison, Professor of Political Science at the University of British Columbia. We'll talk more about the impact here in BC, what could be changing with the carbon tax. This is Mornings with Simi. This very much strikes me as something that our Scott Chance would definitely try to do. I've been tempted myself, but Scott definitely wants to try the cold plunge, don't no, you, Scott? Well, I've tried it. I've been doing it, and uh, I feel great, Simi. I, I got into this routine over summer where I would exercise by going trail running, and at the end of the trail run, I would end in Deep Cove and basically go straight from the run like into the water cold, shock myself. Ooh, look at me. I'm so tough. I'm cold plunging. (sighs) Stay in there as long as I can and then get out. Okay. Right? Yeah. And I feel great. But I'm also aware, like, I don't want to be the guy who just goes along with a thing because it's a thing. I like to, I hate this term, do my own research and figure out, you know. Of course you do. Uh, you know, am I feeling great because I'm running? You know, if I just did the run, the trail run, and then didn't go in the water, you know, I'm in nature, I'm increasing the amount of exercise in my life. It could be any of these things. But I like the idea of the cold plunge. Like, I feel like theoretically this works because, yeah, sometimes your body needs that jolt. It gets the blood flowing. It gets everything going. Well, sure. And all of that is true. But people who are like avid cold plungers, and this is like a huge trend. I know tons of people who are getting into it. Like, you can buy like cold plunge tubs on Amazon and like people are getting really, really into it. And some of the claims are pretty like pretty far reaching. It helps you with like diet and sleep and and mental health and all this type of stuff. So I tried to do like a little bit more uh, of a deep dive into it and talk to a couple of experts. The first of whom is Dr. Stephen Chung. He's a professor and senior research fellow at Brock University Department of Kinesiology. And I asked him just to like, like, where does this whole cold plunge thing come? from because it's gotten really, really popular. We do know that athletes use cold baths for recovery after hard training. We know that there are things that happen to the body, such as you get a big adrenaline rush, your heart rate goes up, your breathing rate goes up, and that there is supposed to be, you know, that's your body's response to shock. Uh, your skin temperature has dropped really rapidly, so your body responds with your nervous system going into hyperdrive. And that, again, explains the heart rate, explains the rapid breathing. We do know that uh, there's also a big kind of just a arousal. You know, that adrenaline is coursing throughout your body, so you feel really alive. So that's some of the psychological benefits of it. People feel really awake, alive, alert afterwards. And that's the adrenaline rushing through your body. I get it. Like you say, for elite athletes, hockey players, rugby players, that type of thing with inflammation, I totally understand that. But it feels like as cold plunging has gained popularity, people are starting to say it can it the the list of things that it benefits, you know, things like mental health and metabolism and, you know, uh, performance and sleep and like all all of these different things. I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, how much of this is placebo? And it I mean, I and I do. 
I'm not against placebo. I think, hey, if it makes you feel great, go ahead and do it. Like I said, I'm, I'm doing it and I do feel great, but I'm wondering, am I only feeling great because I know that I sh- I'm supposed to be feeling great? I'm part of the cool kids club that goes cold plunging. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, literally cool kids club. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, no, it's not a big magic silver bullet that's going to be the cure for all of your health concerns, right? And I just want to want listeners to keep that in mind. There are things that can definitely benefit. One of the big things is this arousal, this alertness, this potential improvement in mental health. So do you, do you think it can actually help though? Or is it just like that placebo factor? I think it's transient. Uh, You know, it's not going to be again, the only thing that's going to, going to be your magic cure again. I think it can be part of a healthy routine. If, if you believe, like you say, with the placebo effect, that this is something that really helps me, this gets me a good start to the day, gives me a charge, not really that many negative side effects to it. So certainly some skepticism there, and he's not the only person that feels that way. Here's Kelly King. She is a doctoral research uh, student at Ottawa U. There's definitely a lot of conflicting evidence. Um, Some of the major claims that we see when it comes to cold plunging is related to metabolism. So you see an increase in metabolism, which may be um, a hot topic for potential uh, avenue for dieting. Um, there's also the, the potential mental health benefits, um, as well as um, some more generalized health benefits that may be related to your heart or even insulin when it comes to diabetes. Um, but like I was saying, uh, with the scientific uh, perspective of it, there's some conflicting evidence. There is evidence that it does, uh, uh, in fact, help with a lot of these major issues. But of course, with each of these aspects, there's um, some some studies say that they're they're seeing quite the opposite, or no no change between um, those who do the cold plunge versus uh, those who do not do the cold plunge. It's tough to say. It even if it's a placebo effect, if uh, if you're feeling better, then then I can't see why that wouldn't be a positive. So I guess power of the mind, Simi. If you think that it works thing. for you, it works for you. But the like once you start doing it and like going in, like now that I've done it a handful of times, I'm like, do I really need to keep doing this? Because in the moment, it's not as enjoyable Scott. as you as you would think it is. <laughs> I would like to see you keep doing it now as the weather gets colder. It's yeah, one it's thing to do it harder. in the summer, Scott, <laughs> but I want to see you doing it in the dead of winter. Apparently, I just need to think about doing it, and then I'll get the same benefits. No, I don't believe that. I'm going to be there with bells on, taking pictures. This is Mornings with Simi. Will the Prime Minister show the same courage and admit he just like the NDP leader, is dead wrong and vote for our common sense motion to keep the heat on and take the tax off. It's Conservative leader Pierre Polyev yesterday in the House of Commons keeping up the heat, so to speak, on the carbon tax these days. And we're talking about it this morning too. We've heard about how effective theoretically it can be. We just spoke to a guest about that. But we've also been hearing about how some politicians say it's time to tweak it or get rid of it, even here in BC. 
where it's been pretty much a done deal since Gordon Campbell brought it in back in, what, 2009. So for now, it looks like BC is not getting the same exemptions other provinces are. So where does that leave us? What should we be doing? Well, joining us now to talk about that is Kevin Falcon, leader of the opposition for BC United. Thanks for joining us. And thanks for having me, Simi. So what do you think when you see what's happening right now, all this discussion and debate about the carbon tax, like you were there at the cabinet table when it was originally brought in. What's happened? What's gone wrong? Well, I think that's a very, very important point, because when we brought in the revenue neutral carbon tax by law, we had to take every penny of revenue generated by the carbon tax and return it to the public in the form of lower personal income taxes, lower small business taxes. And that, I think, was an important part of the contract we have with the public. It was a tax shift as opposed to a tax grab. But since that time, and and I have to tell you, when I was finance minister in 2012, I froze the carbon tax at $30 a ton, which represented about $0.06 a litre for the average uh, consumer out there. And we froze it in place, and we kept it frozen after I retired from public life in 2013. Uh, The following uh, finance minister, BC Liberal finance minister, Mike Dion, kept it Uh, frozen at $30 and stayed that way until the NDP were elected in 2017. Then two things happened that I think really changed everything. Number one, they changed the law to say we're no longer going to return the money back to individuals and small business. We're going to take it all into government. And number two, they more than doubled it. And now they plan on more almost tripling it over the next seven years. And I just think that what's happened now, the circumstances have changed. We're the most unaffordable province in the entire country. And people, frankly, are just getting fed up and can't afford it. Now, Specifically with the heat fuels, um, we were very clear about that, that when Justin Trudeau said that he was going to provide tax relief for some homeowners on the East Coast because they happened to heat their homes with with oil, uh, we said that should apply right across the board here in British Columbia, whether you heat it with oil, whether you heat it with natural gas or propane. We would take the carbon tax off all home heating fuels, full stop. Okay, so doesn't that start to tweak it, though? Doesn't that kind of get away from the original purpose of it? It does. And, and, but I think we need to understand something here. Um, we, you know, whenever you're in government, you can't do things without understanding the context. The context in British Columbia right now is that we're the most unaffordable province in the country. We've got the highest housing prices in North America, the highest gas prices in North America, the highest rents in Canada. We've uh, got a government, an NDP government, that's introduced or raised 29 taxes since they've been in government. And quite frankly, I think the public is really struggling. And at a time the public's really struggling, we cannot be charging a carbon tax on something as fundamental as heating your home. And and I just think that, you know, if it was getting results, uh, for example, back in, in my day when I was finance minister, even at the very low rate that we had it at six cents a litre, Um, we at least were seeing declines in emissions. But we're seeing rising emissions today. Uh, At the same time, we're seeing them cranking up the carbon tax. And I just think that we have to look at other things we can do, because there are lots of other things we can do, to uh, make a big contribution to reducing emissions globally. Okay, but first of all, why not return then to the principles of the original purpose back in 2009 and say, all right, we can offset it other in other areas? Because 2009 was also financially a tough time, right? Coming out, that was a great recession. There was a lot going on there. So it wasn't easy back then either to bring this in. Oh, no, definitely it was not. And trust me, the, the politics were tough too. But I think the public bought into it because of the essential fairness, the fact that it was a tax shift so they could see that it wasn't going to be government just greedily taking the money in um, and it was going to be returned to them. And it was also at a a very supportable level. Six cents a litre is something most people can support. Um, You know, the problem is 
Uh, now it's it uh, you know now it's at almost 15 cents a liter, and uh, you know as I say, the province wants to triple it over the next uh, seven years. And I just think that you know people don't want to be paying almost 40 cents a liter just in a carbon tax, especially when they're not getting any benefit. Now the government will say, well, we've doubled the rebates. Well, the only reason they've doubled the rebates is because they've doubled the the, the carbon tax amount, so the rebates go up uh, as you increase the carbon tax. But I just think that we have to look at the broader picture here. 50% of British Columbians are $200 a month away from not being able to meet their family budgets. And in the, in the context of a very struggling population, I think it's time for us to actually start providing relief to, to, to a public that genuinely deserves it. Okay, so then how do you change habits then? If you, if you shift away from the carbon tax as a form of, of getting people to change habits and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, then what? Well, first of all, I think, you know, again, um, I think there's lots we can do. So, for example, I think the investments, uh, I was always proud of, of uh, pushing through the Canada line, even though there was lots of objection by the NDP and by other groups and local mayors, et cetera, that didn't support that. But that took 100,000 people a day out of their cars and into public transit. Same thing with, uh, you know, getting the Evergreen line launched and up and running. That was a great way of pulling people out of their cars and, and, and making a really important climate contribution. But we also have to recognize that British Columbia is a rounding error. We're like 0.3% of global emissions. So where can we make the biggest contribution? Actually, it's by exporting our LNG to places like India, China, and Japan, and seeing dramatic reductions in global emissions as a result of helping them transfer out of coal-fired power, which is the worst form of emissions, into a cleaner uh, fuel, which is LNG. That would actually do way more than we could ever do here in British Columbia. So I think we have to recognize we are part of a global citizenry and we need to do our part globally. And that's where we can make great contributions. Well, can't we also set an example? Like we can set an example by getting them LNG, but we can also set an example by showing them the way to do that. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. There's no question about it. And and that's where I think, uh, you know, a lot of the other things that we're doing are, you know, uh, encouraging people to use electric vehicles, you know, when they can afford it. We can't, again, this is an area where, the government wants to jam that onto the province. But the problem is, you know, I'm up in the north right now. And I can tell you in places like Terrace and Fort St. John, electric vehicles aren't the answer. Uh, they're not going to work in minus 40 degree weather particularly effectively. Uh, people have different needs up here. We have to remember we're governing a big province. And we've got to make sure that our policies are reflective of the fact that this is a big, diverse province. But there's lots of things uh, that folks can do up in the north here too and want to do. They, everyone wants to play their part. British Columbians believe in climate change. You know, we're not like uh, some people out there that are still denying it. We believe it's real. We want to do our bit, but we want to do really practical things that people know will work. For example, making sure that we invest right now in doing the kind of resiliency investment we need to make in the forestry sector so that we don't have forest fires every other year in British Columbia, which, by the way, creates so much pollution far more than our entire industry and cars and vehicles on the road combined. So what would you do, though? So if you were elected tomorrow, what would you do? How would you tweak this? First of all, I would make sure that we're investing in what I call resiliency infrastructure. So uh, what that means is making sure that we invest in the forestry uh, sector, do the uh, the thinning of the trees that need to be done, create bigger gaps between communities, we, you know, these break areas to ensure that uh, we protect communities from future forest fires. I would invest in the kind of resiliency infrastructure that protects us from future floods, which uh, almost certainly are going to happen. I would work with local governments to work on the dikes to make sure that we make the big investments that we need to make uh, and we're going to have to make, which will save us billions of dollars down the road. I would continue with the commitments we made, the most important one, eliminating permanently 
the provincial fuel tax, which would drop the price of fuel by 15 cents a litre for all the drivers out there, that's significant. You know, in a Ford F-150, uh, you're talking about up to $35 uh, reduction in the tank of gas fill or a, a mum or dad driving a minivan that would save almost $20 per fill. You know, at a time when people are struggling, you know, and fill their cars up sometimes weekly, you know, $100 or $140 a month in savings is really significant. And I just think that we have to start recognizing families are struggling, they deserve a break, and we've got to provide those breaks. Well, at the same time, making sure that we remain very committed to doing everything we can to help do our bit as British Columbians and as part of the global uh, citizenry that we're part of. Uh, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. No problem. Thanks very much for having me, Simi. That's Kevin Falcon, leader of the opposition for BC United, talking about ways that BC should even and could even uh, improve the carbon tax. Now this has become a discussion, right, with the exemptions given by the federal liberal government, and everybody's talking about, well, wait a minute, how can we do this better? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Search is still on this morning for Randall Hopley, a known sex offender who targeted children and escaped supervision. There are still so many questions about how this happened, about the system that even resulted in this situation. Now, Hopley served his full term after being convicted for the 2011 abduction of a little boy in Sparwood. He was released in October of 2018, but, but... The National Parole Board had also recommended a long-term supervision order, citing his high risk of reoffending as an untreated sex offender. So we thought, let's take a look back at how we got here, how we find them ourselves in this situation. Bill Graveland is with us. Bill is the national correspondent for the Canadian Press, who has extensively covered the Randall Hopley case for ten years plus, and has continued to follow the story. And joins us now, Bill. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Given everything you've covered in this story, it must not surprise you that this is back in the news. Well, I was surprised that uh, that it was back in the news because I kind of expected he'd be kind of kept in jail forever. Uh, especially, uh, I remember back at the uh, the hearing for the uh, for the uh, long term offender. They said he was a high risk to offend. He refused to uh, accept uh, or to take any kind of. Uh, um, sexual uh, offender treatment unless he was guaranteed a shorter jail sentence. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this this is a guy with an IQ of, like, between 59 and 70-something. And uh, I, I just, you know, this is, a, this is a situation where this guy is broken. Yeah, Bill, and to, given how extensively you have covered this and you have seen how the system deals with someone like Randall Hopley, what is your assessment of that? Has the system tried to stay on top of it? I think they have, actually. I mean, this was, a, this was national news for a couple of years that I was covering it. Um, I, I was impressed at the, the case that they laid out when they named him a long-term offender. I mean, they, they released stuff on him dating back from when he was 15, when he started sexually abusing uh, small children. He was designated a pedophile. And, uh, you know, the, the long-term offender, uh, you know, it, uh, it seemed to be they dealt with it really well. And now, unfortunately, um, people do eventually get out of jail sometimes. And uh, the fact that he's never really seemed to accept that he did anything wrong, it... Uh, I mean, I'm not sure what the system can do with that unless you, you know, unless they'd made him a dangerous offender and then they would have been an indeterminate jail term. Right. Because from your, from what you saw, every step of the way, it seems like the system tried. We 
BC Prosecution Service tried, like the Correction Service side, everybody tried to say, listen, this person is dangerous. Well, I, I remember one of the ju- I think the judge that sentenced him, uh, uh, the quote that stuck out in my mind is that she uh, said that uh, uh, Randall Hopley had made the boogeyman real for a lot of children oh, and wow. a lot of people in the public. And, you know, you get parents who wake up in the morning and they're, you know, their three-year-old is gone. And uh, and the other thing I, I remembered is that uh, he'd actually planned on taking the older brother, but uh, because he'd had a number of heart surgeries, he was uh, worried that uh, the, the child might uh, be startled and have a heart attack. And he didn't want to have to deal with that. So this is all stuff that came out in court. So this is stuff that he has said himself. Oh, yeah. The six-hour... I watched a six-hour interview with him and the police. Even uh, Paul Hebert, uh, the the little boy's dad, had talked to him for about an hour and told him that he forgave him and everything. And, and, you know, he just said, well, I never meant to hurt your son. I just wanted to spend some time with him. Um, They chose the house, which was not so new now, but in the time it was sort of a new subdivision in, uh, in Sparwood. And he just walked in and, you know, grabbed him out of the door was open and uh, he grabbed him and took him away. Wow. I mean, it was, it was mind boggling at the time. And there was so many people out looking for him. There were hundreds of people going through the bush, fearing the worst that they were going to find his body. And then all of a sudden, you know, he, he's fine. But, so. but if, uh, I guess that's too far, is he though, right? Then that's the thing. It, it was he, all that happened. I remember that panic. I remember that story so well too. And you were there in the community when it happened. Even the idea that six years was what he ended up serving and that was his full sentence. I think even that bothers people. Oh, it does. And uh, like I say, it, you know, they always, uh, the old trope, they pulled out the parent's worst nightmare. Um, this was literally a parent's worst nightmare because they were pleading. Uh, uh, his mom and dad were were talking to the media and they were saying, look, just bring our boy back. Yeah, remember, no yeah. questions asked. You know, and it turned out that he'd had him in a like an abandoned cabin or one that was closed for the season. And, and you know, and during the trial, and this is something that, that the police have never said, the court never said that the boy was actually molested. Um, now, um, and it did come out in his hearing that, uh, probably the reason for that is that he was basically unable to, uh, perform uh, for a subtle way of saying things. So, you know, things could have been much worse and, uh, and, you know, and God knows what the little boy's done. His family moved, uh, I think way up in Northern Alberta after this happened and, uh, haven't seen much of, uh, the Hebert sense. Well, understandably so, right? That they need to recover. And this obviously can't help. This can't help for the community, I think, in general, to hear this name back in the news. So, the you know, we've been trying to figure out what kind of went wrong here, Bill, in terms of his supervision. Uh, but from what you're saying is, and you were there every step of the way, all these hearings, the system has tried to do the right thing here. Well, you know, I mean, I, I read that he uh, he's also removed his ankle bracelet or he has ankle uh, monitor, which I thought was almost impossible to do. But uh, uh, I was a not. little shocked about yeah. that. I mean, you can't even track him. And this guy, you know, I once described him as looking like the groundskeeper uh, Bill Murray played on Caddyshack. I mean, uh, I mean, he's he, he's, you know, like a, just a little guy and could probably just fit in on the street. No one would even look at him twice. And so finding him, I'm afraid, is going to be uh, a little bit more difficult than people might expect. 
Well, talking about it, I think, helps, right? Getting that picture out there certainly helps. Bill, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Absolutely my pleasure. That Thank is you. Bill Graveland. Bill is a national correspondent for the Canadian press, has extensively covered all of the cases involving Randall Hopley over the years. And the reason why that perspective is is so important right now is that we, you know, it's easy to say, oh, the system did this and the system did that. But Bill knows because he was there every step of the way to see what the system actually did. And he said, listen, the system tried the best that it could uh, under the circumstances to supervise this person, to keep this person behind bars, to put conditions there, to say everything that they could say. They believed he was a high risk to reoffend. They believed that, you know, he wasn't cooperating that he wasn't doing his court-ordered conditions. But again, they got to a point where there was only so much that they could do. Now, there's more to come on this. Obviously, police are, are following every possible lead. Uh, what's important is for the public to also know what they're dealing with here. So if you go to our website, cknw.com or globalnews.ca, you can see the picture there. Police have put that out and said, you know, be on the lookout for this person. He has violated his conditions now. He did walk away from that halfway home. They do want him back under their supervision. So look at the picture. Know who, you know, we're dealing with here. And if you know anything, please contact police on that. This is Mornings with Simi. It is hard enough to hear the words, you have cancer. But at least, you know, you think, well, the healthcare system will immediately kick in and and look after you when that happens. At least that is what we think will happen. And it does happen for so many people, but not for everyone, not for our next guest. Kristen Logan joins us now, who is a cancer patient undergoing treatment. Kristen, thanks for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. First of all, how are you? How are you doing? Um, you know, I'm doing pretty good today. I've uh, had my first chemotherapy treatment, and I have to say that uh, that treatment has, has helped me to feel much better than I had been feeling previously. Okay. When did this all start? Can you, when, when was your diagnosis? My diagnosis was in September, and, you know, getting to that diagnosis was quite the process itself. And, and I know that that happens for, for many people where, uh, you know, you go in with these symptoms and they kind of get ignored or blown off uh, multiple times before it seems like you have to stand up and scream and shout to get someone to run the right test. Oh man, that is so true, right? So you you weren't feeling well. <laughs> Did you have to convince your doctor, say, listen, something is wrong here. You need to test me. And actually, I, um, you know, have going to my doctor a few times and kind of, you know, it's, you know, irritable bowel syndrome or it's, you know, uh, maybe it's exercise-induced asthma. It actually took uh, waking up one morning and having some intense pain in my side, taking me to the ER before I got those tests. Oh, wow. Okay. And and you got the test. What did they tell you? Well, after going to the ER, and and by this point, it's September, and, you know, my symptoms started back in March. So at this point in the ER, you know, they ran some tests uh, looking at my side and said, you have fluid in the lining of your lungs. Um, And they they couldn't find, you know, there's no clots. There's no real reason for that. They were going to send me home from that point. Uh, my husband uh, was my advocate, and he was there, and he said, look, you know, she's been having a lot of bloating in her abdomen as well for months. Nobody can find a cause for that. I think it's related. Will you please just run another CT scan there? And fortunately, they did, and that's where they found that I had all this fluid in my abdomen as well. Um, and then they saw that I had some thickening uh, in you know, the cavity in my abdomen that, that they said, this, this looks like it could be cancer. Okay, and from that point on, did the diagnosis come fairly quickly? 
Um, I would say it took about, uh, let's see, that was the 2nd of September and it was the 18th that I got diagnosed wow. officially. Okay, so still, that's still a while. Not as quick as I would have liked. Because nope. At that point, you know, you realize like, wow, all this time has gone by that I've been having these symptoms. How bad is it? And, and so by the time they diagnosed, or even before diagnosis, they said, if this is cancer, it's metastasized. <clears throat> so... Yeah. Okay, so Kristen, now you're at September 18th, and now you think, you know what, I yeah. want to start chemotherapy, like, right now. But w- what yes. happened at that point? <laughs> um, at that point, you know, they put in a referral for BC cancer, um, and, you know, I waited about a week and a half, um, and, and at that point I decided, you know, I'm a dual citizen, and, and I had some options in the States, so I said I, I can't keep waiting for BC cancer, so I left. Um and then they called me uh, the day after I came to the States to set up my initial oncology appointment for October 6th. What's interesting is when they set it up, they said, you really should be here in person. So I was willing to go to Victoria, you know, from where I'm at. I'm in Washington, so not a big drive. Uh, and they said, you should be here in person. Then they called me a couple days before the appointment and said, oh, the doctor can't meet you in person. He's busy. So, so wait a minute, uh, wait a minute, right. wait a minute, Kristen. Yeah. So now yeah, right. this is already getting close to October 6th. You were diagnosed September 18th. Yeah. Clearly, you've got a lot of problems. It's already been months where you've been feeling these symptoms. Right. And now they're putting yeah. you off again at that point? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like they, they told me from the very beginning, like, oh, you know, you're a priority because you're young. I'm only 43. Oh, wow. Um, okay. You're young, you're healthy, you're fit. This is aggressive and it's already stage four. So you're a priority. You know, and, and and they said that, but nothing they did from that point ever demonstrated that prioritization. And Okay, so what, um, what happened know, when you said to them, listen, what is going on here with this treatment? Am I getting this or not? Well, you know, so I, I did meet with the oncologist over the phone on October 6th, and he said, again, priority, let's, you know, we're going to get you in. Uh, he said he was going to call, uh, I'm in Campbell River, he's going to call the Campbell River Hospital to get me in for chemo the next week, if he could get it in the next week, uh, I, weeks go by. And finally on November 2nd, I took it upon myself to call BC cancer and say, what happened? Um, and that's when I found out, you know, they had Campbell river hospital call me back and they had no record of a referral made for me to have treatment at all. They didn't even see that I had spoken to an oncologist. I had to remember the oncologist's name so that they could track it down. You know, Kristen, my blood is boiling at this point for you (laughs) because I've been through this in my family and I can't even imagine how furious I would be if if this were, you know, if this, I'd had to deal with this situation. So did they apologize? Like what happened? The doctor did call me and apologize. and, And I have to tell you, he called me panicked, you know, asking me if I was okay, if I was okay. And, and that let me know that, you know, had I not been in the States getting treatment, I probably wouldn't be able to have this conversation with you. I probably wouldn't still be here. Um, and, you know, you shared this happened to you. And I have already, just from coming public with this story a couple of days ago, had so many stories pour in that are so similar. And in so many cases, the outcome was not so fortunate. And I just think, you know, this isn't just about me. This not, I'm not going public for me, though I am furious. As I'm well going you public be. because there are so many people who are relying on the system, and it's letting them down in the worst ways. Kristen, what's happened since you've gone public? 
Um, well, I've gotten some publicity, as you know. Uh, you know, I have to say I haven't I haven't heard from you know anybody. I, I saw that uh, Global News aired a segment about me last night, and they also um, asked Health Minister Adrian Dix about you know my situation. And I have to tell you, his response was to me not really a response. You know, he said that if there's an issue in the system, people have a right to lodge a complaint. That's not good enough because so many people, again, the outcome is that they died. How do you lodge a complaint when you're dead? Um, that's not a response. That's not a responsible response. Are you going to lodge a complaint, though? I absolutely will. Yes. Um, but I think I'm going to do a lot more than that. I think my fight is just getting started. I, I want to amass other people's stories and collect them. Uh, people can send them to me. I'm on Instagram at, at Torva Logan. And through that, I figure, you know, the more stories that we have collected together, the much harder it's going to be to ignore, because I don't think a complaint is going to fix anything. Have you, I think it's just going to let them know about me. Right. Have you been able to try to, have you been able to pinpoint kind of where the problem originated from? Was it BC cancer miscommunication? Was it the doctor's office mm-hmm. miscommunication? Like, where did it go wrong here? In this situation, it was the oncologist putting the referral in for treatment. That's where the system went wrong. Um, and then there's no follow-up, you know, to set, to ensure that the referral went through. So somewhere in the process of putting the referral in and uh, ensuring that it went through, there was no, there was no fail-safe there. Um, and the, the doctor messed up. But, you know, like I compare it to, you know, if you had pilots flying 20 hours a day, and they were crashing planes, would you pin it on the pilots? No, it's a systemic problem. And it, it, it goes all the way back to the very beginning with, you know, doctors gatekeeping the system instead of running appropriate tests at the first sign of trouble. Right. And it you, comes all the way forward to, th- to this. You would think, though, if somebody's file says stage four, that that should move things up a notch, right? That that should put you on a different track, essentially. You would think um, that doesn't seem to be the case. Okay, so you uh, want, I, uh, oh, mm-hmm. how how are you feeling in terms of what's your treatment now moving forward? Well, how much what's your treatment like right now? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in the states, as I said, and, and so um, I'm going to have you know three chemotherapy treatments, and then I'm going to uh, most likely, assuming that the cancer has receded enough, uh, they're going to do surgery. They'll do a full hysterectomy um, and omentectomy or uh, removing the omentum. Uh, and so, and then they'll let me recover from that and I'll have another three chemo treatments. Um, at that point they'll, you know, determine whether or not I need an additional chemo treatment and what the, um, maintenance regimen will be from there. And this is a really aggressive cancer and it's one that has a high recurrence rate. So, um, it's certainly not to be trifled with. Do you feel like you're in good hands now with your treatment? Yes, I do. I'm, I'm in a, in a really good facility in Washington state. Um, feeling really confident in that. Um, but it's been really hard on on me and my family. You know, my husband is in Campbell River. Um, you know, my income is completely gone. Um, I was a significant income earner in our family. And so this has put just so much pressure financially on my family. Um, you know, are we, are we going to keep our house? Um, you know, what's going to happen? Our, our daughter just started university this year. You know, so it's just so much. And then, of course, I'm here with my parents mm-hmm. instead of, with my husband and my daughter. So it's just put so much strain um, across the board at a time when our family really 
you know, cancer should be the only strain we have to face. Well, Chris, I think you are incredibly brave. And thank you so much you. for sharing your story. And, you know, can you give your um, Instagram your handle out again or how people can contact you? Absolutely. Um, so Instagram is probably the easiest, um, at Torva Logan. That's T-O-R-V-A-L-O-G-A-N. Um, you can also find me on Facebook um, with the same handle. I have a Facebook page um, that's uh, set up and that I'll be specifically uh, using for all of the my cancer fight as well as um, my fight to change the system. Well, we're going to be thinking of you, okay? And anything we can do to help you, you and support you, you just let us know. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time and, and having me on the show today, Simi. Best of luck. We'll be thinking of you, Kristen, okay? Thank you. Take care. You too. That is Kristen Logan. Kristen is a cancer patient, stage four ovarian cancer undergoing treatment right now. And she says that the cancer system here in BC failed her, that she's one of those that slipped slip through the cracks or is this a systemic problem? Like what is going on? The one thing we've always said is that if somebody's got cancer, we look after you here in BC. Well, that didn't happen here. And saying that, okay, the system's not perfect is not good enough when we're talking about somebody who immediately needed to get in. Now, if you have a story that you think, you know what? this happened to me too, or I know this, this, this happened as well, let us know. Simi at cknw.com. We'll keep track of Kristen and try to get some more answers too about what went wrong here and what's going to be done to fix it.